1: Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, EugenioDuartePhD.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. I'm very excited today because we're venturing into the world of organizational psychology something that I've been interested in for a very long time, and we're speaking to organizational consultant Michael Diamond about his new book entitled Discovering Organizational Identity, Dynamics of Relational Attachment. To say a few words about my guest, he is a professor emeritus of public affairs and organization studies at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and His more than 35 years of writing and research are focused on the nexus of psychoanalysis, organizational politics, and culture. And he's got a couple prior books. Uh, The first, The Unconscious Life of Organizations, published in 1993, and later, Private Selves in Public Organizations, published in 2009. So I'm very excited to talk to him. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you very much. I appreciate it.
1: So let's start at the beginning. Could you tell us a bit about what you do as an organizational researcher, organizational consultant?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Yeah. So this is something that I've really devoted my entire academic career to. Um, I, you know, my I've been fortunate enough to have opportunities to work with a lot of different kinds of uh, organizations and use those organizations as really my. Uh, data point for taking a psychoanalytic um perspective uh on um organizations and on relationships that people have within organizations and as you know you noted from the subtitle of the book i place a lot of emphasis on the uh, relational uh attachment dynamics because i do feel that uh, our work is deeply meaningful to all of us um And it's only become more meaningful in the 21st century. But it's also, um, as we we all know, uh, complicated uh, by the uh, variety of relationships that we find within organizations and the nature of organizational structure as well. So I've been fortunate enough to have an opportunity to study organizations while at the same time using my research and my observations and the the data that I use, which is from a psychoanalytic perspective, to then inform how to change organizations in a more positive, more humane, less oppressive way.
1: So were you trained as a psychoanalyst?
0: No, I I actually, um, I have gone through psychoanalysis, but I, I was trained as a political psychologist and political philosopher. And all of my work going back to my dissertation at the University of Maryland uh, focused on uh, Freud and, uh, and then post-Freudian psychoanalysis as a way of understanding the question that most political philosophers, if not all of them, fundamentally ask before they discuss and articulate, you know, the issues that are more political, and that is the question of human nature. And so for me, uh, what I found um, in, my, in my doctoral studies was that what was really missing was an appreciation for the unconscious and for unconscious processes. And um, what to me was a much truer uh, image um, of uh, social character and of uh, uh, individuals. And, and I found many people to work with over the years so that I could move into organization psychology and use my psychoanalytic per perspective. In fact, in the book in the preface I discuss how I got onto this. So it's 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 articulated there as well.
1: And, and it sounds like you're coming from a multidisciplinary background like you're bringing several um, That's right. you know, academic training in several fields to bear on on your work. You yes. Know, I I find it interesting the way that psychoanalysis can be applied to organizations because we tend to think of psychoanalysis as Something that concerns individual psychology, or maybe at most um, interactions between two people. So, sure. I mean, how do you how do you apply how do you translate psychoanalytic principles to groups to yeah. organizations?
0: Yeah, this is always the the first question <laughs> that I try to address in my writing um, as as well. And the way that you know I have looked at it, and uh, the way that I, I find it. Um, uh, most helpful. And I, I guess I would describe my own approach to looking at organizations, um, you know, as, as more kind of post-Kleinian and, you know, object relations I have found to be very, very helpful. But so organizations, to answer your question, um, is, is the context in which um, psychodynamics really emerge. And often they are organized around the structure and the culture of organizations, uh, so we look at dynamics, for example, between leaders and followers. We look at the dynamics of groups, much like Beyond did, but also as Freud did in his later work, acknowledging the uh, the social um, and acknowledging the you know the the the, the nature of the uh, um, relationship between members of the of the group and and the leadership in terms of. Uh, the, the notion of the ideal being placed in a leader. So for me, as I study organizations and as I work with organizations for over 35 years, I have found the concepts, the psychoanalytic concepts, to be really critical to understanding the the, the collision, if you will, between personality and character and organizational structure, particularly around hierarchy, for example, right? I mean, the place where we see transference and countertransference often play out, is around the hierarchy between supervisor and subordinate relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of different ways. So groups become important, so the way in which we look at organizations is carrying a narrative that communicates something to us, and for me it's organization identity, specific about the organization. That narrative has a way of repeating itself in the stories that people tell, And in the markers that they place, emotional markers on their experience in the organization. And so for me, that's really critical data, historically, observationally, experientially, that then becomes important in terms of helping the organization to come to terms and the people in the organization with their own story and how that story has introduced the level of dysfunctionality or conflict that they're trying to address so that they can move on more effectively and, uh, more productively.
1: And, and that really brings us to, to the subject, to the title of your book. So let's take some more time with that. What, what exactly is an organizational identity? How do you, how do you define it? How do you see it? Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, The the nature of of organizational identity is is really a way of understanding more deeply the notion of organizational membership. And the fundamental question that I always ask, and um, those who work with me closely um, uh, try to, to ask as we're working in organizations trying to sort out, you know the psychodynamics of the organization is what is it like to work here mm. what would it mean to be a member of this organization so the question itself is a form of identification right and, and and requires the processes of identification to understand it and so for me the notion of organizational identity really is what comes together when we study the organizational the organization as a relational an experiential phenomenon. Um, as we know, many people who study organizations study it sociologically, structurally, study it economically, um, and, 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 and often don't get at the fact that organizations, just like groups, have a psychological reality to them that I think, in terms of understanding the character of that organization, one has to get access to. And that's what I try to address and explain in the book, in particular by taking off from Winnicott's work. And 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 Donald Winnicott's work is probably one of the most influential psychoanalysts and uh, uh, whose thought, for me, is very helpful in understanding organizations. And I borrow from his notion of potential space as a way of seeing the role of the organizational researcher or consultant psychoanalytically as taking up a third position Mm -hmm. and that third position is inner subjectivity where we're really observing the collision or the interaction between subject and object and the more we can articulate that, the more we see that emerge in this potential space and the more we have to share at a level of consciousness with members of, organ- of the organization to have a better handle on their own organization and therefore have a greater sense of agency in attempting to change the, uh, the psychodynamics.
1: But speaking of collision, I mean, what do you do when, as I think often happens, different people in an organization have different views, different experiences of what it means to be a member of that organization? If, what do you do when there's not consensus about what the character identity of the organization is can there are there times where there's not a consensus about what the organizational identity is
0: absolutely and that's the nature of the identity itself in other words um Hmm. it's often the case that that is very a very helpful dynamic to be able to articulate for participants in the organization so that once you know we kind of you know, break through a little bit of the, the the frozen kind of positions that people often take up in organizations, they're able to see that, ah, we all come to the same problem, but often with different perspectives, or we all come, come to the same organization, but we often um, interpret our experiences differently. And until we get to be able to hear that and listen to that mm. from one another, We're not going to be able to um, repair the organization. So, in fact, what you're describing are the very commonplace psychological splitting that goes on in organizations as a consequence of the nature of joining groups, which is a regressive experience. And so being able to articulate that as we collect data to tell the story of the organization, usually what we, we do is we articulate the story in ways such as, well, you know, some people see it this way and some that way, and it's this against that, or it's good against bad, or it's, or it's black against white, or it's, you know, absolutes, you know, uh, in, in a way that people begin to see how unproductive their relational dynamics are. And so that's where what you're describing is precisely what we often find, which is that people come to the same set of events depending on their place in the organization, depending on their character, depending on their role. There's a whole number of different elements there, but they all come to the same set of um, experiences and dynamics from a very different perspective that needs to be communicated with resonance before people in the organization are able to uh, transcend uh, the, the repetition that they're stuck in, for example, because that's really what we're talking about.
1: So then the organ- sort of an organization's identity then it sounds like it's not something that's necessarily known by everyone or maybe even known by anyone in advance it It might be something that gets articulated over time as as these interactions and as these conversations with your help of course as they happen. am I getting that right
0: yes you are the 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 idea is that. Working in organizations as and and my, my argument is always particularly to consultants That one has to study the organization before designing intervention strategies It's often the case that what we we see in most Consultation work is people have a fixed way of consulting and They don't take into account the importance of the contextual matter of the organization so for me When I define organization identity, organization identity is really the outcome of my work. It is, in in a sense, the importance of the research, the collection of data, if you will, which for me, and it's psychoanalytic data, is historical, observational, associational, experiential, and empathic. And those last two, by the way, capture transference and countertransference. Being able to articulate that into a story about the organization is a way of representing for people the identity of their organization, what it means to be a member of this organization from the perspective of an outsider. And that comes after we spend a lot of time interviewing, observing, and uh, sorting through what we can about the organization. Now, and, and, And don't get me wrong, there is... Factual data as well that has to be collected in any case of an organization. So it's not as if we're ignoring reality. We're just dealing with the tension between, um, you know, fantasy and reality by focusing on what a psychoanalytic theory tells you is critical, which is psychological reality. And in the organizational literature on identity, they don't acknowledge psychological reality. They don't acknowledge the fact that this is actually critical to understanding how organizations come to be where they are when they're dysfunctional or in conflict or um, in very, you know, deep, low morale or uh, experienced as oppressive or even violent, for that matter.
1: Now, you you mentioned transference and countertransference, and I'm glad you did because those are concepts, again, that people might understand what they mean at the individual or even at a level or at the level of the pair. But what can we talk about those in in ways that people who are new to this might understand people who go to work every day and and work in an organization? Like what, what does it mean for there to be transference at work or in an organization?
0: Yeah. So, so I typically communicate transference um, to my audience, to my, uh, readers as, as um, shared emotions um, and I do talk about it in the context of the organization as being not only between um, a supervisor and a subordinate or a leader and a follower, you know, those dynamics, for example, of idealizing, on the, you know, and mirroring are very important to understanding the nature of followership within the organization and therefore understanding the challenges of, of leadership but it's not just the members of the organization and you have transference among peers as well within organization. Uh, You are also talking about, and this is really critical, the researcher slash consultant being conscious of transference and counter-transference dynamics. So what does that look like? Well, I can walk into an organization that's in deep trouble and they've hired me to come in, and, and they, they understand my methodology because they have to agree to it for me to work with them, and they understand that I'm going to spend some time observing, interviewing, walking around, and getting a feel for the culture of the organization. And in, in, in doing so, I'm paying attention to the transference and, of course, countertransference because I have all kinds of reactions to different kinds of workplaces, some of which I like, some of which I find attractive, You know, and, and, uh, everything around that. But I can walk into an organization and get a feeling from participants that they're, they see me as some savior. And I'm going to come and I, I have some magical, you know, potion that will improve everything overnight. Or they might see me as a spy. And so I, I'm viewed very suspiciously. And there's a level of paranoia about my presence, you know, or I'm experienced as intrusive. And, you know, um, as a result of that there's resistance to my participation or my engagement with them. It's really critical that as a um, a consultant, um, I'm conscious of those dynamics because the way people use me in my role does speak to the nature of relations within that organization, particularly as it relates to people in positions of authority and people in positions of leadership. So those are just some of the ways in which um, transference and, and countertransference work their ways out. And in the collection of data, certainly the experiential is important because that's where I start to see the transference work its way out. And, and I try to articulate that in my experience and their experience of the organization. And then the empathy and the empathic dimension in terms of my own counter-transference, as well as how, you know, I observe that within the organization between supervisors and subordinates, leaders, followers, uh, and among peers. Does that make sense?
1: Totally. I'm, I'm wondering actually if you have a case example that you wouldn't mind sharing to sort of illustrate how how this all worked in real life and, and how how this all played out with an actual client?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, um, all, you know, I, I can give you a vignette, which, you know, basically might, you know, give you, um, uh, you know, an, an idea. Um, and, you know, uh, it's really important that I mention, too, that I try to include vignettes that, you know, are cases that are not always do not always have successful outcomes, right? I mean, in some cases, you know, we get pretty far, but we realize, well, you know, unless um, you know, the, there's a, there's a change of leadership, you know, um, given where power and authority rest, uh, you know, the fundamental identity of the organization is not going to change. So, just as a you know, as a um, proviso, I wanted to to to, to mention that. But sure. you know, let's, let's take one case of a of a police department. And um, you know, uh the police department, uh one police department, in fact I've worked with, with several in the past, contacted me um, you know, as a result of um the um the the police department over many years uh finding that the conflict and tension between the captains and the chief of the police department and the, um, uh, sergeants and the police officers, you know, out on the, on, you know, on the beat and in the cars day in and day out, um, was getting serious to the point of dysfunction and communications were really failing and morale was really low. And, uh, there were even cases of, of sabotage and, um, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, um, morale related, uh, problems. And so, I went into the police department and, um, brought in some colleagues to, to work with me. And of course, the first thing that we did was explain our methodology and, you know, and insist that, you know, we need to spend some time learning about what the issues are before we engage in any, you know, uh, you know, grand recommendations. So in spending time with the police department, to make a a long story short, what we found in this particular police department was that the, um, the chief and the captains um, who worked closely together worked out of the offices in the main building for the police department and rarely went out onto the uh, um, uh, to the streets and rarely went out with the um, patrol officers to, you know, get a feel for what was going on out there in terms of the community itself. Right. The police department didn't have a great um, uh, um, wasn't viewed positively, let's put it that way, from much of the community as well. So there were a lot of problems in terms of race relations, in terms of um, uh, responsiveness, uh, and, a, and a whole host of, of issues that we found when we, you know, spent time with the police officers. We, we would spend um, time also riding around with the police officers and also um, meeting with them when they would come back from their shifts and the shift would transfer from one one shift overnight to the next, where the sergeant's role was really to process what was going on in the community before the police officers went back out into the, the, the community. Now, the first thing in terms of dynamics with the, these groups was that it took time for us to build trust with both sides, right, to the issue. And... The only way to really build that trust is to be viewed um, authentically as treating both sides to the conflict um, fairly, equally, uh, justly. And that meant that they what they saw from us is that, you know, we weren't just listening to the chief and to the captains and then going out and talking to the police officers and telling them, well, this is what's wrong and how are you going to fix it? But rather we were listening to both sides. And rather, we were trying to manage the relationship by actually building the level of trust that the you know chief and the uh, um, the, the captains as well as the you know the um, patrol officers had of us. So by spending that time with them, listening deeply to their issues and trying to understand it from their perspective, and then eventually presenting to the whole of the police department our findings which is when we tell the story well here's what we learned about you know your police department and it's that the 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 captains and the you know and the chief have come to view the police officers as behaving like juveniles and, and behaving like children and you know um feeling entitled and you know not You know, um, uh, doing the work that they're, they're hired, um, to do, not, you know, doing a whole number of things that would come up. And then on the side of the, the chiefs, you know, we would talk about how, you know, the, the, from the perspective of the police officers, they saw the chief and the, and the captains as being dismissive. Um, and so, you're, what you get is you, you're almost getting a parent-child relationship between these, these two critical groups mm. where what we had to get them to understand was that actually until they came to terms with trying to understand perspective from each other's side, there would not be a resolution to the conflict. Um, and that's where we're really working around, you know, not, without getting into too much detail um, that's where we're really getting around the transference dynamics between the consultants and the participants and between the the supervisors and the subordinates, if you will, in terms of the chief and captains and the um, uh, the police officers. so it was really articulating these two stories which came into collision right and getting them to understand that there, what we would have to search for is a way to bridge these alternative perspectives, the way to take two narratives that were in opposition and to create a third narrative that ultimately represented a bridge to these groups to communicate better and to work more effectively and to rebuild their trust uh, and respect for one another.
1: But I'm wondering in terms of your methodology with this police department, did you have to get these two sides in the same room at some point. I mean, how did you get them to yes. communicate with each? And how did that go?
0: Yeah. Well, when we presented our findings, uh, we, we basically got them in the room together and, um, it was awkward, of course, as it always is. And I, I have many stories about different responses, you know, uh, to, um, our, giving the narrative in terms of, okay, you know, so here's the perspective from, from outsiders. Here's what it looks to, uh, like to us. Tell us if we got it right or if we got it wrong. Cause that's how I usually present it. And basically having both groups there, you know, and I, I'm presenting the narrative as I suggested in a very raw way uh, to you. Um, what, what the, the, um, uh, the narrative looked like, um, Often, what I get is there's a a, um, a period of silence sometimes, mm. and it's very thick, right? <laughs> it's very anxiety laden and thick silence. What's and happening
1: then, in that silence?
0: Ah, well, what you know, the interesting thing about the the, the silence is that um, people are are basically, you know, feeling. As, as as descriptive as I can be in presenting the narrative, which I try to be, it's going to be experienced as, as a judgment, right? Mm. So it's going to be experienced as I'm bad, or oh, you know, it's our fault. And so they're sitting on a lot of anger often. They're sitting on um, the fact that, you know, they're being, um, they're feeling exposed. Um, they're feeling like, um, you know, we are um, telling them that they they're doing a bad job and that they're and that they're bad as opposed to, look, here's an opportunity to learn. Here's an opportunity to acknowledge the, the way in which you're interacting with one another at these two very important levels between these two critical groups. And here's an opportunity for positive change often what you get is you get resistance to that mm. and the resistance you know is really important i think in terms of trying to understand the the response to that so sometimes depending on the group and depending on my best reading of the group after about you know a few very difficult minutes maybe 5 minutes you know <laughs> at the at the boundary i will then say to uh you know t- to the group well you know, um, how do you want us to understand what this silence is all about? And in the example of the police department, and I, I use this as an example of the unthought known. You know, Bolus's way of talking about unconscious processes, which I find very helpful, by mm-hmm, the way. Mm-hmm. And but it pulls right from Freud. <laughs> and he and so somebody in the back, I, I remember this very very clearly. And actually, uh, um, uh, ironically, it was one of the captains says. Well, we knew this, (laughs) he said, but we just never had somebody come in and tell it, tell us this in that way. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. I mean, that is like, you know, that's the notion of repetition in which transference gets articulated around an acknowledgement of um, knowing something at at one level, um, but not having thought it Mm. at another. (laughs) Right? Mm-hmm. So the unthought known is there where they're they're kind of saying, Well, you know, and, and often often the 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 um the suggestion coming from the client in this case is what the hell did we need you guys for to tell us something we already knew?
1: Well, but that they, they, <laughs> they didn't they did. know that they knew.
0: That's right. And they just have to be reminded of that. And often um in in doing so, we then begin a process where they get to talk to one another across the boundary mm-hmm. and the boundary which is an important concept psychoanalytically and in terms of psychoanalytic consulting it's a terribly important uh, concept whether we're talking about interorganizational interdivisional interdepartmental whatever right intergroup um the that phenomenon becomes very important and here we are at a place where we we're asking them well so so we got it right. I mean, are you saying so? So, so this narrative that we're, this story we're telling you resonates with you. It's a representation of your organization, of your department. Is that right? And, you know, sometimes people will defensively try to edit what we have up there and there'll be little things, but it'll be obvious that it's in the nature of their attempts to manage their own anxieties. But once we can then get them to focus on each other, in terms of how they come to um, this place where the story is oppositional narratives, they get to begin to understand, well, of course I would view things differently, or, you know, the officers, you know, are communicating, gee, it would really be nice if, you know, if occasionally the chief or the the captains came out into the, the, um, the, the field with us occasionally to check out how things were going were to find out, for example, why um, we hesitate in certain neighborhoods to um, you know um, uh, stop somebody on the street unless we have backup and how difficult it is to get back and then you, so then you get these these really specific kinds of issues that are important to the police officers that the captains and the and the chief who have somewhat isolated themselves Come to learn about and realize, oh I see so so there there are actual issues here that we can work on um, that you know go beyond your behaving like you know juveniles you know and, uh, and and our being dismissive of you and so you know you get this then you get this um, communication going where there begins to 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 happen this resonance um, around the narrative and an ability to actually communicate across the boundary and begin to kind of melt a little bit. The defenses that have been built up over time between these two groups that cause and and reproduce this repetition that I was describing to you in the case of day in and day out, you know, it's the police officers going out into the street and behaving like juveniles and the you know, the police chief and the captain staying in their protective offices and being dismissive of any problems that the police officers try to bring to them to get resolution on. Does
1: that uh, make sense? Yeah, and it sounds like it, it sounds like one of the first steps in healing the split between these two sides is to say something about the organization, not about any one camp or other camp, but no. to say something about the entire organization that once everybody hears it or most – most everybody can agree to it and recognize it. And that's, that's, that's the unthought known I think you're talking about, that everyone can okay. say, yes, that, that, is, that is true about this organization. And I imagine it has to be something that is not judgmental or, or blaming of anyone, but, it's, but that right. des- describes what's going on and that that's how you go yes. forward. That's the
0: trick. And I, um, it's interesting. And over the years working with doctoral students you know, in terms of training them to do this, it's so often the case. I mean, you know, I, you know, I will say, you know, I, I've done this for 35 years, and I still work at being really good at at being descriptive, but I'm not as good as I feel like I need to be because it's it's inevitable that the client. We'll take some of it as um, judgmental, as hard as we work at it. But but if you make an effort to be descriptive, and if you make an effort to analyze at the level of the organization, um, that becomes very, very critical. So you're speaking about the organization, which I think gives you, if this makes sense, just enough psychological distance between the client, him or herself, and the organization that it allows them to at least reflect on what you're you're sharing with them. Something that at one level they know, at another level they don't, right? Right, right. Um, and and so yes, being descriptive and staying focused, um, ultimately telling the story of the organization becomes critical. I think in terms of often getting these two sides, which we often have, uh, the split the fragment, um, to begin to heal, to begin to move toward restoration.
1: You, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot in these days is I think a lot about globalization and I think a lot about technology and culture. And I'm wondering in your experience, how how are these things? How are culture and the fact that many organizations now are are large and have places, have locations in various parts of the world, or the fact that the workers in any organization can come from many different places and cultures, and the, and the fact that technology helps us sort of spread our wings into other cultures, how does all of that influence the kind of problems that you see organizations having these days, maybe compared to when you first started your career?
0: Well, um, yeah, when I first started my career and, and what got me into this in the, in the, in the first place was I, I was, my dissertation was looking at the psychology of bureaucracy and I was in Washington DC and, you know, so, and I was working with a, a group at the time, uh, that was, um, you know, from the University of California where we were basically looking at the senior executive service and that really kind of, um, uh, got me started. And so, yeah, at that time I was looking at bureaucracies. And of course, at that time, we're talking 1981, um, the, you know, we didn't have technology like we have today. And certainly globalization was not uh, what we have today. Over the years in working with companies as well as with government organizations and, um, you know, and, and healthcare Uh, agencies like, you know, uh, medical schools and and the like, certainly the world has become much more complex and much more chaotic at the same time. Um, One thing that, you know, using as I just used as an example, the police department, that's kind of a microcosm of them, what you see, you know, 10 to 100 fold out there. In many organizations today that are working as more globalized companies, mm-hmm. where um, the way in which we see offices organized around the world looks somewhat different, given the diversity of the host culture of those um, offices, right? So, the, the the notion of helping groups to manage Boundaries between other groups with different sets of assumptions, with different experiences, with different cultures and different belief systems, um, becomes a real challenge. And I find that, you know, again, a psychodynamic approach is very informative because it, it, it really reminds you that ultimately you're working at the boundary, right? And and by, by working at the boundary, what I mean is, you know, you're you're the one in your consulting role that ultimately has to help leaders be able to bridge the differences and the diversity between these groups and bridging them means being respectful of their differences while communicating from one to the other so that they can work together effectively and hopefully successfully and th- and that's you know that's where globalization comes in and i think um uh, has a uh, pretty powerful impact now technology can be helpful certainly um but i've always argued that um you know technology is fine and well and good but the way organizations work is still fundamentally a human process, Mm, mm. and I I think still fundamentally needs to be appreciated and acknowledged at a very human level. I have seen many, many organizations, companies and government agencies waste a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of training on um, the latest technologies that um, then don't get applied or don't get used because the actual users are not consulted in the process.
1: I I think that that's such great advice. Um, Michael, we're almost out of time. But before we go, I want to know, would you tell us what you're working on next? Um, Well,
0: um, I I continue to, um, you know, I'm here in New York, and this is where I live and work now. Um, I am working, however, I continue to work with the University of Missouri Press, on um, a book series, and the book series is on advancing organizational psychodynamics. So, um, you know, I'm working as their editor-in-chief on that. So, you know, I'm looking for really good manuscripts, that book manuscripts, that will, you know, kind of move this, I don't know if we want to call it interdiscipline, let's call it that, um, um, uh, forward. Uh and um that's one thing that I'm doing. I, I, I haven't started a new book as yet, but I have many different ideas. Right now I'm just reading manuscripts for the most part and doing consulting uh with various organizations uh here in New York. Um and working with colleagues uh here in New York as as well. And and then also doing presentations on the book. So uh, uh, I'm keeping busy and enjoying it, and uh, looking forward to my next uh, book project, which uh, has yet to be um, uh, fully articulated.
1: Oh well, well, once it is, I hope that you'll consider coming back. This has been a really oh, I'd uh, love to really interesting conversation, and those sound like really interesting projects. Um, and we wish you the best of luck with them.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you very much for being on the show.
0: I, I enjoyed it.
1: That was my interview with Michael Diamond, author of the book, Discovering Organizational Identity, Dynamics of a Relational Attachment, published in 2016 by University of Missouri. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to send me your comments and requests by going to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on Contact. There, you can also find links to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, where I post links to my latest podcast episodes, as well as the latest ideas and news in psychology. Until next time, have a great week.